Richard, welcome to the podcast today. Happy to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Are you really? Uh, I'm glad to see you. Happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, I just said I had to be here, so I might as well be happy about it. Um, I mean, you're you're currently a developer advocate for AWS Tools, so same organization I am in at Amazon, but you've had a, a super unique journey. So I wanted to start out a little bit uh, before we get into Cloud9 and some of the tips you have for a pr- productive uh, environment of what led you uh, to where you are today, right? So your your background, I think, is in defense industry, right? Yeah, I spent about uh, 10 years in the defense industry uh, before coming to Amazon. Uh, and this was a mix of like some active duty time in the military. And then after college, uh, I went back to the defense industry. I did some uh, fancy math, but the uh, Center for Army Analysis for uh, like nine or 10 months as like an internship. And then... Uh, yeah, it slowly segued in. Like, you can't do much like advanced math without like needing to learn like a little bit of like scripting at the very least, which got me to Python and then Java. Next thing you know, I'm like you know, writing services. Uh, yeah, and then I was uh, at a defense contractor, a federally funded research and development center. Uh, and after a while, I was like, I want to see what this private sector is everybody's talking about. Uh, so I uh, applied for a job and I went to uh, Alexa. That's that started my uh, my Amazon career. Yeah, and I so I and I I don't know if we even brushed past because I know I was over there at the time, but you were doing like the real work. I was doing like the talks and the hello world, but you were actually creating the, the product, and that had to be a shocker going from. I don't know how the DevOps culture at the defense industry was, you know, five years ago compared to how the Alexa organization was uh, at Amazon. Right, that had to be a shocker. Oh, it was a, it was a huge shock. Right, the joke I was making, like the closest thing we had to CD was that like somebody would burn like the application onto a physical CD and carry it into the you know the skiff, the yep. top secret like facility for for running the code. Like we had like things we would call release trains where every Friday somebody would say, okay, like this commit, this is what's getting uh, you know sent into the skiff this weekend, and they would burn it onto a CD. They they had to put it in, like this. Uh, it's like you know those bags that like banks use when people drop off money where it has like the heavy zipper oh, yeah. and the big lock on it? Yeah. It was like one of those because they'd have to carry it like across the street to another one of our buildings where security would scan it. They would scan it to make sure that you know, everything was okay with it. They put it back in a bag and they'd bring it back to the same building to go into the the sensitive room. And yeah, that was that was the closest we had to like continuous delivery is that someone's just continuously walking back and forth across the street. <laughs> It's kind of amazing. Like as far as manual processes go. <laughs> it is the most manual. Yes. It actually requires, uh, you know, a human to walk back and forth. Yeah. And like who who brought the bag over? Was it like whoever uh, had the short straw or was it like an assigned no, duty? To- that, that, was a, that was a coveted role in the security org. Is that like you had to be like specifically, oh, coveted, maybe that's a bit too extreme. But uh, yeah, you had to be like specifically trained on like, what to do on like all these different scenarios that might happen between, uh, you know, building A and building B. So it's like if a wow. vehicle like blocked your path and you thought someone was going to try and take it from you, like, what do you do? And it was, and like, we were working on like UAV stuff. So it wasn't like super, it's not like we were doing like, you know, nuclear secrets or anything that you would think people would really want to know about. This was all just right. like route planning for UAVs, which is a very boring part of the defense industry. And what is a UAV for people who don't know? Oh, it's an unmanned aerial vehicle. 
Uh, it's a drone. Right? It's like a, the ones that we were working on are you know probably comparable to like the DJI models, like the Phantom style in terms of like their size of how big they are, and uh, probably also in terms of like their capabilities. It couldn't really do much, but like fly around. But it was a it was a really cool like math problem. It was a a very very gross like approximation of the traveling salesman problem that we're trying to solve. So it was, it was fun. It, it appealed to the the math nerd in me. But, you, yeah. I was going to ask. You said you did fancy math, which <laughs> if someone had taught me fancy math in middle school, I might have been more interested. Um, but <laughs> is that your background? Like, is that what you're really good at naturally? Uh, no, and yes. So it is my background. I'm not good at it naturally. Um, I. My uh, yeah, undergrad and grad school was uh, applied math and operations research, which is like the application of math to like planning problems. That's so like smart. really smart. Like the people I know <laughs> who did applied math, like they had to do calculus, yeah. like advanced calculus, like calculus well, three. <laughs> oh, I took like a couple of like the quote unquote pure math classes because mm-hmm. there was like an actual like math department. And I, I, I did really well in like pre-calculus, calculus, we call it calculus one, calculus two. But when it got into like multivariable calculus, I was lost because it was a lot of like prove that this thing is true. And it was like, oh. you hear about like QED and all these acronyms and things you need to use and things of logic. I was like, this is, this is hard. And then my sophomore year, uh, I, because of the scheduling mix up, I had to take the applied calculus three instead of the pure math calculus three. And the, the professor who's in like the engineering department wanted to like prove that something was true. And I'm like, Oh, like, here we go again. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, these things are all orthogonal because like my hand is shaped like this. And he's like, and then we know it's true. And I'm like, did he just like prove this with his hand? Like, this is where I should have been all this time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny when you were talking about, uh, what did you say? UAVs. I was thinking of UAPs which is the new rage now, right? The unidentified aerial phenomenon. It's the government's new name for UFOs with all the stuff that they released, which we could uh, we could go on for a while. Yeah, like for folks who don't know, as part of the, it was something under one of the, there was certain legislation that went across uh, earlier this year that said all government uh, agencies had to release everything they knew on UFOs by... Um, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, and they released it and said, "Yeah, we don't know what this stuff is." The lobbyist, crazy. I got to tell you, the lobbyist that represents Roswell, New Mexico, is a genius. Like to be able to pull that off. (laughs) Yeah, and I was like, "It's only it speaks to twenty twenty one, right?" That the fact that that went out and everyone was like, "Okay, just I I can't process anything anymore, right?" We're just gonna we're just gonna keep going on. I was like, "Wow," so. so you were in Alexa, you're starting to see, like, is that when you first saw uh, pipelines? Uh, I know you did stuff like at Amazon and Robotics too. Like you've been in some really interesting like areas to build. Like when did you start seeing the whole CI, CD thing and looking at the world that way and looking at automation? Uh, yeah. So when I, when I joined Alexa, like it was the first time like we had like a pipeline, like we had this internal system that is very much like code pipeline and, uh, we had this, this you know, multi-stage pipeline. We had like alpha, you know, alpha stage, pre-production, production, and then inside of production, you'd have, uh, you know, wave one to, um, you know, IAD and PDX and a couple other regions. And this is stuff that um, 
you'll probably put in the show notes with like Claire's talk about how we do like multi-region uh, pipelines where you have, you know, geometric deployments and all these different like deployment schemes and ways that you can roll out these changes and safely roll them back. And uh, yeah, I came into Alexa and I was like, this is amazing. Like they should be like, everybody should be building like this. And I was like, maybe everybody is. I just never saw it because I was, I was in the defense industry. So I was, I was all about it. And at the time, uh, internally, we were undergoing this like migration from uh, Amazon uh, retail is like shares like a single at the time shared like a single AWS account. So if you imagine like all of AWS, all, sorry, all of Amazon inside like a single VPC or, or like two VPCs, it was, they're running out of like class B IP addresses. And like this, like we can't do this. So they, they set up this program to do this migration that they were calling NAS, which is migration to native AWS. And it allowed individual teams to like own their own destiny in terms of like they own the infrastructure in an AWS account that supports their, their stuff. And a lot of this, the capability for, for doing this was like driven by uh, builder tools, which is like the internal equivalent of, of dev tools, developer tools. And uh, that's where I was like first introduced to CDK is where I was first introduced to a lot of like the teams that, that build a lot of these, like how do you build systems for, you know, uh, you know, tens of thousands of developers to like share code easily. So you don't have a hundred thousand versions of like Python 3.7 floating around because it's not deduplicated at all. Uh, and I was like, this is, this is great. Uh, and I, I'm sorry, in my team on Alexa, we were one of the first to move to native AWS uh, because the way the system was architected is that we had no external dependencies at runtime. So if you think about, you know, we've often talked about how Amazon is this like, uh, service-oriented architecture where you have some service, you you get a request, you do some processing, you might call some other services to like compile all the data to, you know, do some computation on it and provide a response. Well, at some point that has to like stop. You have to get to someone who can like answer a query without asking someone else. Otherwise you'll end up in this like cycle. And we just happen to be one of those services. And because of the way this migration was architected, that meant we were first to make this move uh, because we didn't have to worry about calling back into the network where everyone was sharing infrastructure to, service or request. Yeah, no legacy. Yep. So, yeah, so we were one of the first to make this this transition and I, I really enjoyed it. So I, I spent a while just like helping other teams kind of also make this as we spread. And uh, our friend from Amazon Robotics approached me and said, hey, we want to do the same thing at Amazon Robotics. Like you want to come over here and help? So I was like, sure, absolutely. So I figured it would it would be just like what I did at Alexa, just, you know, 45 minutes closer to my house. So I'd like free up a bunch of, bunch of my time by not having to commute. And I got there and uh, it was the place, it was, it was a great place to work. It was some of their CI CD practices were like huge variants. You hear people talk about um, companies are in like kind of one of three buckets, right? It's like no CI CD whatsoever, uh, kind of a little bit around the edge. And then there's some that are like full CI CD, like this is the gold standard. And I think that even inside of companies in each one of those buckets, like you'll see that same distribution. It's like fractal, right? Because you'll go into yes. these companies that everyone assumes are like perfect CI/CD, like yeah. DevOps practitioners. And I, I come into Amazon Robotics, and the way that they were deploying their Lambda function was that they would go into our internal, you know, Git repo or Git farm, and copy the code from the page, like Control C, and then like paste it into the Lambda console. And like that was their like deploy, like that was a, a job that the on call had to do. I was like, that's not quite CD. Like, I know I'm still kind of new to this, but I don't think that's it. So, <laughs> that uh, seems a little bit 
toil right there. Exactly. Um, no, I think that's a really interesting point. I think people treat, especially enterprises or large companies, as one unit, and it's not at all. Like almost never, it is very much groupings of smaller kind of companies, um, and they have their own sort of culture. They just are nested within this other larger one. So, talk to me about Cloud Nine. You um, you were here when it was acquired, right? You were at Amazon. Yeah, I was at Amazon. So I was at uh, Amazon Robotics when it was acquired, or when we when we announced the acquisition and like made it available. I'm yeah. sure it was acquired before that, and I hadn't noticed. Um, and yeah, and I tried to use it like as soon as it was announced. I remember I was sitting at my desk and I tried to use it, and like it like it it tripped up like our internal security mechanism that we have like internally because it the way it's set up by default, at least at the time, was that like, it would create an EC2 instance with uh, a subnet that had port 22, which is a port used for SSH, like open to the world because that was like technically how it connected to it. Oh. So it, it triggered what we call internally like a SEV2, which is a thing where it pages yeah. you. But like I wasn't on call, so like any good engineer, I took the batteries out of my pager and it, <laughs> it, escalated, it escalated to my manager who was uh, – who was on vacation at the time, who uh-huh. probably also took the batteries out of his pager. Oops. So it escalated to his manager and she was not thrilled about what I was doing. She's like, what, like, why are you doing this? And I was like, oh, I was just playing with it. And it's like, yeah. okay, but why'd you take batteries out of your pager? So like, I'm not on call. Um, it was a, it was a very uncomfortable day for me. Um, That's fair. It's like in order to administer kind of, uh, you know, you said tens of thousands of developers, like you need these like robust automated security mechanisms. And when someone just like slaps a new service out there that like, is like this like radical shift in the way people like write code, like this cloud-based IDE, it, you know, set off a bunch of alarms. Yeah. They they fairly quickly fixed that. Like they updated, they slightly tweaked like the internal like security rules to like track that. And just last year, Cloud9 launched the ability to connect to an instance over like SSM. Mm -hmm. I forget the actual name. It's like Instance Connect or SSM Connect. One of the the tools of SSM to connect to the instance. So you don't have to open up any ports, you know, port 22 to the world. Do you feel like this will be the default? I know, you know, tech Twitter is a little bit diverged from real life Twitter, uh, real life tech, but um, there's been a bunch of conversations around cloud-based IDEs and having that be the default. Do you feel like that's where we're headed? Or do you feel like a local dev environment is still important? Uh, I think a, a local dev environment is very much like a, like a first world luxury, right? Like, and it's like all of the people that we know, like use those because like, every developer I, I work with like closely, like has a MacBook, right? Like everyone has a MacBook. So if you already have a MacBook, like you probably don't really want to invest too much in like a cloud ID because you have a fairly performant uh, laptop as it is. But as we start like expanding access into uh, you know, parts of Africa, parts of India, part of like historically underserved parts of the world, as much as uh, some of these companies would like, they're not all going to have MacBooks. Uh, and like, they're going to need something like uh uh, a cloud-based IDE or something where they can kind of pay per consumption instead of having to like lay out a bunch of capital for this piece of hardware up front. Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> too. When I've talked to folks, people who specifically were in different parts of Africa, um, because I mean, parts of it are having Nairobi and Lagos are having these massive sort of renaissances. It's awesome to, to watch. But uh, a lot of the infrastructure across that continent is intermittent. Like you'll have rolling blackouts. Um, and so they were saying that that's one of the challenges with cloud-based IDEs, that it's, you know, it can be intermittent and interrupt your workflow. Yeah, I think we're going to end up like something like, uh, like a low power tablet connected to like a more like computationally powerful like cloud based ID backend. Yeah. 
like via via browser. I think like we've pretty much standardized on like the browser is the means of connection for that. Like yeah. I don't expect uh, VNC or some other kind of uh, technology to be used. Yeah. Why do you think a developer should try Cloud9? Uh, there's a there's a couple of reasons for it, right? So there's one part like when you're when you're writing when you're developing, right? Like especially if you're trying to do something like actually new. I do this a lot when I'm like building demos. Is that like I might need like some third party library that like it it has some you know some dependency. I don't fully understand or it's like oh it needs like a conflicting version of python or it needs a different version of node because those get deprecated like every six weeks and you you have to balance like okay like do i want to like set up like a sandbox area where i can like be okay like destroying everything when i'm done uh or do i want to like make sure i take like copious notes as i do this so i can like undo it if there's like a a problem and container solves like some of this like you have like this containerized environment but it is a very steep learning curve right like you have to learn about the docker commit you have to learn about you know connecting to uh how you connect to the instance you know port forwarding and sockets and all the stuff that i don't even understand and like containers do solve this uh, in terms of like just managing your virtual environment but with a cloud-based ide you can like spin up the environment do whatever you want and if it works great if it doesn't you just throw it away and grab a new one and you're not spending this time like uh you know kind of building guardrails around it to make sure you don't ruin your environment or cleaning up afterwards yeah i want to uh like time to be productive right i so i have a funny story i'll uh, i'll make fun of myself here for a bit so when i first started like everything when i started with aws like a lot of it was theoretical right like i went out i got my first cert i had played around with stuff i had looked at the docs but I wasn't like working on it full time at a company, right? I was in this advocate job. A lot of it's hello world. I didn't know the ins and outs and how to make a more productive environment. And then I meet Richard. And so Richard's like, all right, out of the box, it's going to do this. And he's like, check out my GitHub. I think he called it like mediocre cloud nine. And there's like all this YAML on like actually setting stuff up so that you can be productive. And he sends me all this, right? And so like, I feel immediately intimidated. I'm like, this wasn't in my exam. This is a, this is insane. And like you're sharing it with the world out on GitHub and I'll put the links in there too. And so I was like, all right, I've got Richard's stuff. This is pretty cool. And one of my other coworkers sent me like a really cool bash shell script to like make my terminal really awesome and productive too, integrating with Git and everything. So I'm like, all right, I've got all this nice experience from the team I'm going to use. And then I hit this problem where I keep coding. So I switch. I'm on a Mac, but I'm using AWS workspaces to connect to Amazon. So Amazon's a Windows machine. And I'm on my Mac, and I was doing things locally on my Mac for a while, right? And you get used to the shortcut keys of Command S to save. So I'm saving something in Cloud9, and I hit, I don't know if you remember this, Richard, and I hit you up on Slack, and it's like, I'm writing this demo, and it just, it's every time I go through, it doesn't build. And uh, you're like, Dave, like that little gray light at the top means you didn't save your file. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm hitting Command S. And then I realized it's freaking Windows. So it's Control S. Amazing. And I was like, that's it. It's going to take months to get back Richard's respect after I embarrassed myself like that. <laughs> I'm like, at least it didn't happen on stage. Um, but it just, it, it, in my head, I was like, okay, like this is just the, we've been so tied to the specifics of the OS. Mm. You know, like there's no universal copy, paste, save, anything. And it really hit me in my brain of like, I'm not on my Mac when, I, when I'm doing this, right? And, and so, I don't know, can you talk a little bit about creating a productive workflow and everything that you've created? Because I, I think it's super cool. 
Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, one part I wanted to address, like, I, I sorry, the reason I called it mediocre Cloud Nine is because you see all these things that are like awesome this and awesome that, and I was like, not everything gets to be awesome. Like, if everything's awesome, then like nothing is. So like, I used to call it mediocre Cloud Nine because that like, if everything else is awesome, like it sticks in your mind more. Uh, right. Pia wasn't too amused with that logic. Uh, he would, I think he was hoping more for like awesomer Cloud Nine, like awesomest. <laughs> I just uh, feel like you're the human embodiment of under promise over deliver. <laughs> like it's just, yeah. Yeah, it's all right, I guess. <laughs> then it's just amazing. Work, yeah. He's the Scotty of AWS developer tools. Yeah, yeah you can, um, I think I'd have to check, but I think you can like adjust the key bindings in cloud nine so that command S would save it instead of control S. Um, there you go. Because, yeah. There's like, there's some weird spots in the console that are like this. Like I do this all the time when I'm, uh, poking it like a Lambda function, like in the console where I'll like update the test environment and then press like command S to save. And it'll try to like save the web page. Like the <laughs> operating systems, like save page thing comes up. That's like, that's not what I want. Yeah. I just wanted to like save this test event. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the things that I use to get productive, like there's um, some of this dovetails in with like my role as a DA where like I use the product and like I, I come across like some of these like rough edges and I go to the product manager and I'm like, Hey, like, this is like what I'm trying to do. And like, this is like the pain I'm experiencing trying to do it. Like, is there anything like your team can do to fix it? Uh, and that tends to be like the most effective way of addressing that. But like in the interim, like I still have to like be productive until they have time to like allocate resources to like fix some of these things. So yeah, I usually like you know, put together some of these. Uh, it's usually like this weird, like duct tape and glue contraption of like various AWS services that'll like bootstrap the instance and restart it. It used to be much more difficult in terms of like trying to customize the environment because you had to do a bunch of stuff with IAM and attach instance profile. That a lot of that's gotten better, and they're they're going in the right direction. They're making this easier. It's just that like I'm very much like speed turned up to eleven. I'm like I need it now. I need the fix now. Uh, when they were getting ready to launch Amazon Linux two for Cloud Nine, uh, I was like, oh, I'll just use it how it is. Like I don't care that it's broken. And then I go in there and I'm like, what? This is all broken. Like why would you let me use this while it's all broken? Uh, so it's, uh, uh, I forgot what I was saying. Totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, that's I, part I, of so the DA role. Is Amazon Linux too, yeah. Um, yeah. I was just going to say part of the role is like you're literally, when we work with the new stuff, we're working with stuff that's not even documented. Yeah. You know, it's like there's, not, there's, there's nobody you can go up and you can go find an answer on Stack Overflow. Yeah, and if you're like really right, lucky, like one of the engineers will like send you like, oh yeah, here's this like bash script I use to use it, and then you're trying to like parse like bash, like what is this? Like what is that? Like I'm I'm convinced like bash was written in a way to like design a way so that nobody can understand it like after it's been written. Like I've come across like these like one liners in bash that I've written like six months oh, ago, and I'm like, and they're beautiful, well, they're pieces of art. It's like it's it's all, cool. yeah, I wrote this, and it's yeah, it's like the spider explaining myself. Yeah, so it's like. I think it's broken up into a couple parts, right? And I'll put this up in, into the show notes. But I think bottom line, like when I was going through it, what I, what I saw was what you were doing was ensuring that if you ran these as you actually created the server for your Cloud9 instance, that it was pulling the latest library of everything. So you were pulling down the latest CDK, which does iterate pretty quickly. You're pulling down the latest Python. You're making sure that your any kind of dependencies are hooked up on there. Um, a lot of those kind of things that you're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, there was like two parts. So one is like, you know, basically given like the default image you get from cloud nine, like how do I, you know, 
bump the major version of Python to, you know, 3.7.9 or whatever? Uh, or how do I, you know, install Java or Maven? I've seen, like, there's been a couple of places where someone has this, like, huge bootstrap script that just, like, does all of this. But it takes a long time to run, and, like, you don't necessarily need all of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, the first part I, I wrote, I tried making it as, like, as modular as possible. And so people could say, like, oh, yeah, here's, like, this thing I need, and just copy and paste and dump it in. And then the other part that I wrote was... Uh, connected like the thing that we use internally for running workshops like when we run workshops for customers um, it, they use CloudFormation to provision those environments and a lot of these environments start with uh, you know a basic Cloud9 instance and the workshops say okay now that you're in here click on this do all this stuff and do all this extra setup stuff so I wrote a couple of parts of that that um, uh, I can't remember the name we'll put it in the show notes uh, but it it does this like kind of bootstrapping for you using you know, state machine or uh, step functions as like a state machine and some other stuff to uh, uh, you know, do that for customers like automatically until like that that native feature is delivered in Cloud Nine. That's awesome. Sweet. So, what are your current sort of passion projects? Like, what are you excited about? Uh, I'm excited. I'm really excited about like the adoption of Rust uh, inside yeah. of AWS. Like the things that we're working on with that. Cool. Uh, yeah, I was working on a, a demo last week where one feature we were building, one feature that needed to be demoed, only worked with Maven. And another feature we're building only worked with NPM, but we needed like a single demo for both of those. So I made this like terrible application that was like, it was a Rust application that like compiled the WebAssembly WASM. And then that could be packaged up in NPM. And then I used this thing called WASMR inside Java where you can run WebAssembly inside of Java. So I could use like the Maven test runner. And it was it was really gross. I mean, it was a fun project. It was like a fun puzzle to solve, but it was it was tough. Like I learned a lot of things about Java. I'd hope I never had to learn. No Java. <laughs> I don't know. I I programmed in Java for like two years. I you know it has its pros. It's yeah ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah, some of these projects were like basically deprecated. So it's like, oh yeah, there's no documentation, but like here's a jar, and it's yeah. like, thanks. And, <laughs> Godspeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, one thing I, I hate about Java code samples is that it never tells you, like, you look at Python code samples, it always says, like, import requests, right? Or mm-hmm. import Boto 3 or, or whatever. For whatever reason, Java developers just think everybody knows this, right? And, yeah. like, and even with, like, Python, it'll say, like, request.get. So you know what library it came from when you use it. So even if someone doesn't put, like, that import statement at the top, you yeah. can kind of figure it out. With Java, it's just, like, Fubar factory impl facade, and it's like, yep. where did this come from? And what? it's like, how could you not know? Yeah. Clearly, yeah. and it's like, oh, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. a lot of it's like uh, Java doc auto documentation. Like they didn't even bother to write the doc; it's just coming from the tool. <laughs> it's yeah. like you're like, okay, just slap it together. That's yeah, awesome. I love I love Java. Java was like one of the first languages I had coming from. So I went from VB five to Java. And so to me, there's still this love. It's like this retro, it was falling in love with object-oriented programming for me. And then from that, at the time, I was working for a Microsoft consulting agency and they came up with J++, which eventually Anders Halsberg invented C Sharp. So it was, it was basically Microsoft's implementation of the Java runtime. And so it, you could see the early beginnings of what C Sharp became. And then obviously I did C Sharp for a long time and fell in love with that. And before I had seen Python and, and Ruby or anything else. And uh, so to me, it's always been a language that it could, it could, it was the first time like you could really build something where 
you could onboard junior devs and you can just hand them a library and it was easy to kind of discover it. And back then it was Javadoc and it was just the first way to really build out an API. Before that with Visual Basic, it was like trying to do stuff in COM and DCOM and it was just a nightmare. Uh, so yeah. I always have a fondness and Amazon, if you're a Java developer is a place to be, there's a lot of Java still in the systems everywhere. that run this country. Yeah. Yeah. Java is everywhere yeah. still. I, I have a ton of devices. For a while. That was a bastard child of two parents that should never have gotten it. <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. Is it Java and Ruby? That sounds, that sounds terrible. It was horrible. It was like the worst parts of both languages. Oh, um, was bad. I was uh, curious. Oh, well, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> How you you transitioned from military to defense to you know public sector tech? I know a lot of people who went out of sort of the the Beltway Bandit um, <laughs> cycle. <laughs> how did yes. you do it? Like, what would you suggest? Um, how did I do it? Um, I like I'm not sure how well this scales. So I was like reading a research paper because it was about like simulating um, like called actors, but it's not like, you know, like Tom Hanks kind of actor, right? It's like, yeah. uh, uh, state actors. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's like a queuing theory, right? We've got like actors that come into the system and they go interact. And I was, I was doing a simulation as part of my uh, an internship I was working on. And I, I saw this paper that had some like promising results that I was trying to re replicate or adapt enough to work for like what I needed to do. And I reached out to the author and I was like, Hey, I'm trying to like do this. And like, I don't understand this. It turns out it was just like a typo in the paper that if I had like gone into like the source code for it, like it was, it was correct in the source code. It was just that like, I got a version that was like Xerox and like Xerox like a thousand times. Yeah. And it like lost some of the formatting is what it looked like. Um, and yeah, we started talking and he's like, Oh, if you're interested in this, like we're, we're starting a project you know, here that is very similar to this. You can do it full time. And my internship was about to come to an end. So I was like, absolutely. So I, uh, you know, up and moved from, uh, from Virginia at Fort Belvoir to, uh, to, to Boston to, to work at MIT. And right after I started, the guy was like, Oh yeah, like the project I was working on, like didn't get funded. So I'm going to Google. Um, have fun. So I like, I joined as like the only statistician in the group. And then like the project where I was supposed to be contributing to like ended. So it was like being thrown into the deep end. It's like, okay, now you get to learn how to be a software engineer or like find a new job. And I was like, well, I don't really want to find a new job right away because I just started my career. So yeah, I stayed there for a few years. Uh, and that's where I like picked up enough, like enough Java to like to fake my way through an interview at like a defense contractor for a software engineer role. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure um, chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Good. Thanks, Richard. And thanks, Richard.